are going to be studying Isaiah 40 together this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for your word and for the power of your word. And as we look at these verses, we are asking you to open our eyes and hearts and minds and help us to see the hope that there is because of you. So we ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Some historians tell us that when the British were fighting against Napoleon in France, they had set up a series of towers so that they could relay messages back and forth. It wasn't anywhere near as good as the systems that they had with um, later on when they had with telegraph and so forth. But they could either send couriers or send messages by tower. Well, the commander Wellington eventually at Waterloo beat Napoleon, and, and he won that particular victory, and that was really the end of the war. And he sent back across the towers this message, Wellington defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. Okay, very simple. They couldn't send a lot of stuff. I think he also at that point sent messengers that were going to take a lot longer to get there. Well, the message was sent out. And it turns out that at one point, the message had gotten to a certain point, and and then clouds and fog and stuff came in very fast, and the second part of the message they could not get. And so the message that arrived in England was, Wellington defeated. That was it. None of the rest of it got there until much, much later when they were able to go ahead and, and get messengers there and eventually cleared up and they sent the whole message again. But can you imagine the people in England thinking, what? How could we possibly lose? And now all of a sudden, what's going to happen to us? And there's all kinds of things going on. You know, we've been defeated. It's all over. Isaiah 39 is a little bit like that. Isaiah 39, it's, it, it's really one of those chapters in Isaiah where we get a little bit of narrative. And King Hezekiah has the Babylonian people, some of the Babylonian envoys have come to see him. Now, during the same time period, the ten northern kingdoms have already been taken the captives to Syria. And so they're all in Assyria. They're gone. And now so Babylon is this kind of up-and-coming empire, and they're meeting with the people in Jerusalem and meeting with Hezekiah. And, and Hezekiah had, had tried to make, you know, kind of contact with other nations to, to be able to fight against the Assyrians in the past. And, of course, you know, he wasn't trusting the Lord, and none of those things went through. And it appears that that's kind of what he's doing here. That again, he's trying to make an alliance with someone else so that they can both defeat the Assyrians and they won't have any issues. But Isaiah, verse 5 of chapter 39, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, listen to this. Uh, Listen to this message from the Lord of heaven's armies. The time is coming when everything in your palace, all the treasures stored up by your ancestors until now, will be carried off to Babylon Noticing and nothing will be left, says the Lord. That's bad news. That is really bad news. He's saying, hey, you know what? You brought these people in. What did you show them? Well, I showed them all the treasuries. What else did you show them? Well, I showed them all the armories. And Isaiah said, well, you know what? This is what the Lord says. Everything you've showed, it's all going to disappear. And it's all going to go to Babylon. Now, that's the bad news. That's really, really bad news. In contrast to that, you've got chapter 40, 
Now, chapter 40 is looking down the road, but chapter 40 is also an encouragement to the people who have heard the bad news and know that there's trouble coming. And chapter 40 is the good news. Chapter 40 is where he's saying, there is hope. We have God. Yes, you're going to be in captivity, and all those kinds of things are going to happen. Nothing changes in the message that all your stuff's going to get taken, and people are going to get taken to Babylon. But the good news is there's hope, and that hope is this whole chapter. Now, it's very possible that Daniel and some of the friends that went into captivity, the ones who were still pursuing God and were seeking to honor him in their lives, they may have been part of that very small righteous remnant left in Jerusalem who were still listening to and reading the prophets. And so as Daniel and his three friends go into captivity, they're remembering perhaps portions they've heard of chapter 40 here where people are kind of becoming back and God is a God of hope and all those things. It, there is some reason why Daniel and his friends said, no, we're going to follow God. This is the worst thing we've ever been through, dragged across the desert, separated from our families, watching all those people die, being made essentially slaves here in the palace. We'll still follow God. And I think that comes from the hope, the hope that they knew there was in God. And chapter 40 is all about hope. And it's hope that we find because of the character of God not circumstances. And I think that's one of the important things that we need to remember as we look into it. So this is going to be a little bit different. We're going to go flying through the chapter and just highlight some of the attributes of God as we go. Okay? So please understand, I'm not going to give a lot of detail, a lot of background on every verse. I'm going to just give you some stuff. And I challenge you to go home and read Isaiah 40. Read it in two or three different translations. Get a sense of what God is trying to say to his people. So uh, the first thing we find out is that God is merciful, and we find that out <clears throat> from verse 1. And what we mean by mercy is that we are not getting what we deserve, which is judgment. And God is merciful to the people of Israel. He could have just wiped them totally out, but he didn't. He puts them through a time of punishment, and then he's going to bring them back. Now, again, mercy and grace go hand in hand because mercy is not getting what we deserve, which is judgment. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, which is forgiveness and God's work and love in our hearts and lives. And, and, and so we're going to read verse 1 here. And if you don't hear the Messiah in your head as you read these verses, then you have not listened to it enough. Um, just a kind of a recommendation there. You don't have to wait till Christmas. <clears throat> comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. In other words, the punishment which I declared on you, which was 70 years in captivity, that's over with. The service has been completed. Her sin has been paid for that she has received from the Lord. Uh, Lord's hand double for all her sins. So this was punishment, and it's over, and it's, okay, now let's start over again. It wasn't that they had somehow done something to forgive their sins like God forgives our sins. They had been punished for their sins, and now they were able to go back to the land. That's the, the thought that's there. See, Judah's punishment was because they had done years and years and years of following other gods and disobeying God's law. And so God finally said, after prophets had come through, after other kinds of hardship had been brought upon them, finally said, that's it, we're done. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. You're going to go into captivity, and you're going to pay for all of that time that you were worshiping idols. And so God in his mercy is saying, it's time for comfort. That's over with. The time is over. You can go back. 
So that's the first one, God is merciful. Second one, God is glorious. And we're talking about the infinite beauty and the wonder and the grandeur of God with all of his perfections, all of his attributes. Now, these verses sound a lot like what John the Baptist said, and they should because John the Baptist was quoting Isaiah when he said these verses. The voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. And he talks about the valleys being filled up and the mountains being brought down. And, and all of everything will be leveled off. And then in verse 5, And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And we have one of those things happening here where partially this has been fulfilled and then part of it's still coming down the road. And Isaiah, like many of the prophets, struggled with the two different comings. The coming as the Messiah to suffer and die and ascend into heaven and the coming as king to rule over his people in the world. Those are two different things that many times they mixed them up. Or many times they forgot about the suffering part and just wanted to deal with the king part. And that's because they didn't have all the information that we've got. And so here they get to the end. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. Well, yes, the glory of the Lord was revealed in Christ in a certain way. The people that knew him, the people who related to him, they saw that this was the Messiah. They saw that this was the Son of God in a very special and unique way. But all mankind together will see it didn't happen. That's down the road. Okay, so there will be a time when the glory and the wonder of Christ Jesus himself, as he returns and as he sets up, I think it's going to be at that point, the millennial kingdom, as he brings all of that to bear, we will all see his glory together. That's what he's talking about there when he says, all mankind will see his glory. And and then he says, why? Well, because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. All mankind will see it. And, and that's the thing that we need to realize. When he says the mouth of the Lord has spoken it, what he's saying is it's a sure deal. It's a done thing. And so this is going to happen. So God is merciful. God is glorious. Let's move on to God is eternal. He exists forever. He has no beginning and no end. <clears throat> and look at what it says in verse 6. Now we're going to have a contrast in verse 6 through 8 of, of man contrasted with God. A voice says, cry out. And I say, what shall I cry out? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. And and, and again, we're contrasting the glory of the Lord here with the glory of man. Man is glorious. Oh, yeah, that's right. He's so glorious. He's like the grass of the field and the flowers of the field, which fade and pass away. And yet, what do we think of ourselves? Well, we think we're glorious. We think we're wonderful. We think we're amazing. In contrast to God, we're like the grass of the field. He goes on in verse 8 and says, The grass withers and the flowers fall. And then you've got one of those great buts coming right here. But the word of God stands forever. So you've got grass withers, that's us. Flowers fade and wilt, that's us. However, God, God and his word stand forever. So God's word and God himself are eternal. And we see that the whole idea of the grass fading and flowers withering um, the word of God, however, in contrast to that, doesn't fade, doesn't wither, can't be destroyed. Well, down through the centuries they've tried, it has never worked. 
Just before my aunt passed away recently, I was um, talking to her on the phone, and she was really struggling. She was in a lot of pain, and uh, of course that kind of makes you wonder what's going on, and it makes you un- not even clear thinking many times. And and she, she knew that her time was short. She knew she was going to go be with the Lord, and yet there was this sense of agitation, this sense of of not knowing what, what would happen next. And and uh, she said something about, I just I can't remember you know the things that, that God said, and 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 um, had a chance to share something that I'd heard from somebody else, and I said, you know what, you may not remember those things. That's okay. God does, and that's the reality. We may get to a point in our lives where things are fading away. Maybe the pain or things that we're going through are so hard, and it was for my aunt that she couldn't remember that. The Lord has said, I will be with you, no matter what. But God remembered that. And he was with her every step of the way until he called her home. And that's that whole idea that's going on here. We are like the grass. We're like those flowers. doesn't matter how wonderful we think we are and how strong and vibrant we feel we are. And we are going to wither and fade and pass. And God's word will still be there. And God will continue to be God. That's a great thing to remember. Because nothing in creation is permanent. You know, the stars blow up and disappear. Mountains shake and crumble. Floods come along and destroy all kinds of things. But God's attributes never change. God's attributes don't change. He will, His will never changes. His word and His promises never disappear. Psalm 33:11 says the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The word of God is what he's saying. And the plans of God, his heart to all generations. And, and you study all the way through scripture, you find out that the things that God says, the things God promises, they happen. Because he is God and he has the ability to make those things happen. He goes on in verse 9 <clears throat> and he says, "You who bring good tidings to Zion, Go up high on the high mountain, bring uh, you who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice, shout, lift up, do not be afraid. So they say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. And it's very possible that he's referring very specifically, and again, he wrote it before it ever happened, but he's referring to those who are now coming back to the land, and they're seeing all of the things that they're going to have to do and all the devastation that is still there. And it's very possible what he's saying is, hey guys, it's okay. Here is your God. God is with you. You aren't going to need to worry about all of these things. And as the captivity was coming to an end, and they could see God had promised 70 years, the 70 years were over, and now they're being given an opportunity to go back. They said God keeps his promises. And so the good tidings to the people of Israel who were coming back was, it's okay. The judgment is over. It's time to rebuild. It's time to restart. Never forget. Never forget. That God is here with you. And so on one level, what he's saying was, wake up. Wake up, people. God is here. What is wrong with you? Come on, let's go. Let's get going. Let's get back to the into the land and let's do what needs to be done. The next thing we see in verse 10 is that God is gentle. And we have a contrast here. He starts out talking about the sovereignty of God as the creator and the controller of all things, along with the gentleness of God, all in that same kind of context there. So... God is gentle. But it starts on verse 10 with, See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. 
and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. And, and so we see the sovereignty and the power of God, and it's contrasted with what's coming in just a second. But the whole idea here seems to be that the sovereign Lord, the conquering king, is coming, and his reward is coming along with him. And it very, very well could be that he's saying, my reward is the blessings I'm bringing back. Now, it could also be the, the reward is the payback that's going to happen to some of the nations that have caused the things they did to Israel. And all of that is true. He says, the sovereign Lord is coming, and he's coming with all of his blessings. And then he goes on to say, the sovereign Lord, the ruler, the sustainer of all things, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Isn't that incredible? See the contrast? I mean, on the one hand, you've got the power, the power of God, the sovereign God. Anything He chooses to do, He can do, and, and He has the power to make it happen. And on the other hand, you've got the gentle God who's saying, you know what? You're my sheep, and I'm going to protect and care for my flock. I'm going to care for the lambs. The littlest ones, what is the imagery here? The imagery is of a shepherd seeing the lambs that maybe can't keep up and he scoops them up in his arms, maybe a fold of his, of his garment and puts them up, pulls them up here and carries them. That's the general shepherd at work. But he doesn't stop there. He cares for the young and says he gently leads those who have young. And so now he's not just the lambs that maybe can't keep up. Now he's saying, I've got mother lambs who are mother sheep here with their lambs, and I care about them. I'm going to protect them. And I love that imagery. He may be in his own mind, the shepherd may be thinking, you know what? If there's anybody vulnerable in this flock, it's the mom with the babies. And he says, no, that's not going to happen. He gently leads those that have young. Should actually save this for Mother's Day, right? <laughs> well, just remember these verses when we get to Mother's Day. I love that, that, that imagery of God, the powerful, sovereign God saying, I'm a shepherd and I care for moms with little ones. How precious is that? Now, some implications here. Most of us do not have a lot of experience with sheep on a ranch. Uh, and in my case, as I've studied, I've said, thank God for that. <laughs> um, we see the cute little lambs and we think, oh, those are cute. And you maybe get to hold them or feed them at a petting zoo or something like that. But full-grown sheep can be really problematic. Uh, I actually did a little bit of research on this. And I, I had a friend who was a shepherd in Colorado I, I can't even tell you how many things, but sheep can die of more things than you could possibly imagine. They die of fright. Literally. They can be scared to death. Okay? And, and I'm not even going to go into the details of how that happened, but it's, it's incredible. And, and they can be, they can die because they tip over and they can't get back on their feet. And if they can't get back on their feet, well then they can't get anything to eat. And, and I actually saw a video of a shepherd trying to help a sheep that's on its back and is trying to kick the shepherd. Who said sheep are smart? Nobody. Nobody said sheep were smart. 
So sheep, you know, that just again, you're looking at the shepherd taking care of the sheep. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna warn you, if you've seen this, that's great, enjoy it. If you haven't seen this video, watch it, cause it goes by quickly. But this is what sheep are all about. Go ahead and kick this on. That's a sheep being pulled out of a ditch it got itself into, okay? Not hurting the sheep at all. There you go. I'll give it to you in slow motion too, just in case. (laughs) Uh, Here it goes again one more time. Yep, there she goes. And, 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 you know, the guy just pulled the sheep out. I mean, really, how dumb do you have to be? And, and, and really, you know, one of the things that you learn from this, and I, I remember one of my trips, I was driving, in, in, this was in, in Bolivia, I was driving on the Altiplano. We were going from one place to another town to help with some meetings and stuff. And, and as we're going there, there was sheep on both sides of the road, hundreds of them, and, and they were just eating and minding their own business, and we're driving along. Now, I'm being careful because I'm thinking, okay, I don't want to see a sheep start to wander out. Everything's great. And then all of a sudden, for no reason that we know of, about a dozen decided they were going to cross the road, and they bolted. And they did not look both ways, okay? They did not stop and check. They just shot across, and I killed one and maimed a couple of others. Not what I wanted to do. I slammed on the brakes. I steered around as many as I could. We got out of the truck and looked around. We're looking for the shepherds. And and way over in the distance, we see a couple people screaming and yelling and coming. And and I'm thinking to myself, that's not a very good shepherd. You know? I mean, the sheep were doing okay, but where were you? The most dangerous thing for your sheep is this road. And one of the things that I learned from that and some of the other things is that dumb sheep need a good shepherd. And by the way... All sheep are dumb. All of them. That means me, and it means you. Every single one of us, we're dumb sheep. And we need a good shepherd. A good shepherd. Not one sitting on a hill a mile away so they can't even see what's going on. Jesus, our shepherd, said this. John ten eleven. I am the good shepherd The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That's our shepherd. That's the good shepherd. Verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. Verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. And if you want to just get a sense of what the Good Shepherd's all about, go to chapter 10 in John and just read it and think about it. Remember, you're the dumb sheep, and he's the Good Shepherd. So Good Shepherds do three things. We just saw them. They protect the sheep. And what I mean by that is they put themselves between the sheep and whatever danger is coming. That's what a Good Shepherd does. If there's any danger, well, the Shepherd faces the danger and the sheep are behind him. That's what a good shepherd does. The good shepherd knows their sheep. They make sure that the sheep know them. And so when the shepherd's walking with the sheep and he's amongst the sheep, they know this is their shepherd. And that's because the shepherd is with them and has been with them. 
And the other one is the sheep, the good shepherd called their sheep. They listen to his voice. They're used to hearing his voice. And later on in the passages, he calls them by name. So again, just that whole idea. Yeah, we're sheep. We're dumb sheep. But we have a good, good shepherd. And that's a good thing to remember. Let's keep going as we finish up this chapter this morning. God is omnipotent. He has all power. Verse 12, uh, ability to do anything except something that would be contrary to his nature. For instance, God cannot be evil. It is impossible for a perfect, holy God to be evil in any way. He cannot act in any evil way. And, and as we think about that, think about the idea that God is limited by his nature. Think about perfection. How is perfection limitation? It's not. And so as we're chasing that around in our thoughts, saying, well, you know, could he? The reality is this, God can do anything that has to be done, anything he wants to do, all things that he has planned to do, because he operates always through all of his perfections, all of his attributes are part of who he is. So God is omnipotent. Look at what the verse says. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens, who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains in a scale? So just, you know, so that's the hollow of your hand right there, okay? And for God, well, you know, hey, that's the Indian Ocean, the Pacific. Uh, oh, there's, you know, the Antarctic Ocean, the Atlantic, in the hollow of his hand. That's what the verse is saying. That's God. That's his omnipotence. And then when he measured as a span, have you ever done that when you don't really need something? You know, you, you do this. Okay, three of those is what I need. Yep, three. God laid out the universe with a span. So oh, there's one light year. There's two light years. There. That's God. The light years that we, we we keep finding more and more things because the universe just never seems to end. God measured it out just like that with the span of his hands. And then this is uh, this is one that I found fun. He weighed the mountains on the scales, and so let's go ahead and put that uh, picture up there. Uh, I I actually grew up where this was used all the time in the market, not this one that was this fancy. But if you've never seen this kind of thing used, let's just say you go to the lady and you want uh, you want you know half a pound of lard. Well, she would put a half pound weight on one side, which make the scale go like that, and then she'd start heaping lard on the other side until they evened out. Okay, then you got your half pound of lard. It says right here, <laughs> who has held? Uh, he weighed the mountains. On a scales. Eh, you got the Rockies, you got the, you know, the Andes Mountains, you got the Himalayas. Eh, God just weighs them on a scale. No big deal. That's, that's God. That's His sovereignty. Verse 26, I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit for a second. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all this? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one calls them each by name because by His great power and mighty strength, not one is missing. Not one. When we lived in La Paz, uh, one of the things we loved was going up on the Altiplano and seeing the stars. They were just gorgeous. We're 14,000 feet closer to them there, so it was amazing to see. But every day I would get up and I would look also around the city. Let's go ahead and put the next one up there. 
And I would look for Ilimani. That's this mountain here. There's several others around the area. La Paz was right in the middle of the Andes Mountains. And if I could see Ilimani, I knew it was going to be a good day. And, and, and part of that was just me making, you know, I'm seeing this gorgeous mountain. I'm seeing others around that God has created. And no matter what I was struggling with, no matter what I was thinking about, no matter what the difficulty was, I would look up and say, my God made that. God made that mountain. And it doesn't matter how big my problem is or what the struggle is or the doubts and fears that I'm going through. My God made the mountains. Kind of put everything in perspective. Yeah, God made that. Okay, so the fact that I've got this really tough meeting with this other person, yes, you know what? It's not a big deal for God. Telling it to kids, helping kids to learn that God's in control and that He can handle all those difficulties and fears that we've got. My favorite, my favorite hymn for that is God is Bigger Than the Boogeyman. And I don't know if you've heard this, but I'm not going to sing it for you. God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla or the monsters on TV. Oh, God is bigger than the boogeyman. And he's watching out for you and me. If you go through the whole song, it's a song that's talking about God is powerful enough to handle those hundred monsters hiding in your closet. And on one level, our kids need to hear that. And this is kind of, I just put this because I thought it was a very clever way for us to remind ourselves and God that there's nothing too big for God. Even the things in our mind and our imagination that chase around and make us fearful when we stop and realize, oh, that's right. God's bigger than all of that. He's bigger and better than all of that. The next uh, attribute is God's omniscience. He knows all things and he's never had to learn anything or forget anything. Uh, I take that back. He does forget our sins when we confess them. But he's never had to learn anything. Look at what it says in verse 13. Who has understood the mind of the Lord? Or who has instructed him as his counselor? And the answer expected here is absolutely nobody. Nobody has done that. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Nobody. No, nobody. Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? No one. Big, 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 huge capital letters, underlined, bolded, however you want to do it. No one. God didn't need any help for any of that. So we're never going to catch God off guard. We're never going to catch him by surprise. We're not going to ever hear him say, oops, didn't count on that. We're not going to hear God ever say, ah, I didn't see that coming. Because God knows all things. He knows those horrible things that I've done. Because God is omniscient and knows my thoughts, He knows my thinking as I desperately want to get even with that person who has harmed me. Because God knows all things, He knows all the absolute worst things that I have ever done or thought or said, and He still loves me. Because God knows all things. He knows the shame and the guilt I feel for my past. God knew all about me. And He knew all about you. All about men and women everywhere. And He chose to humble Himself and become obedient to death on a cross. Even though He knew those things. 
He knew what was going to happen. He knew I would be disobedient. He knew you would do this and that you would think that. He knew that before. And he chose to come. That's why we say we have an incredible God. God is sovereign, and we see that in verse 15. Some of these are kind of going back and forth. But God is sovereign. He's in absolute control of all things. He's the creator, the sustainer. Look what it says. Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on a scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. And he says, hey, all of the trees in Lebanon and all the animals in the forest are not enough for the sacrifices that we should have. But I'm stealing this idea from someone else. Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. Okay? The nations are like a, wait for it, drop. Oh, look, there's the United States. Russia, China, drop in the bucket. All the nations of the world. That's God. He's sovereign. And we gotta remember that. That's, that's something that we need to hang on to. Verse 17, before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless. Compared to the sovereign God of the universe, we're, we're dust. And the thing he says here, we're like dust on the scales that you would blow it off so that you don't get what you're going to weigh dirty. So God is sovereign. God is unique. He is the one and only. And I have to be honest, I've never really worked on and studied through the uniqueness of God as an attribute. But I think, it, I think it's accurate here. No one is like God, and he's the only wise creator, sustainer. Verse 18 says, to whom then will you compare God? And then he talks about how people want to make an image and they want to have a fine craftsman out of gold, make some kind of God. And, and if you ever have a chance to go to the Oriental Museum in Chicago, they have whole sections of Canaanite, Canaanite household gods. They're about this big, little tiny stone things that have been carved. Because everybody had household gods. And, and on one level he's saying, hey, you know what? God is, God is unique, and what are you going to compare me to? You, you can't get someone to make something that's going to remind you of me. And, and, and this is a really good quote, I think. One reason we are not supposed to make images of God is that there is no image that can capture who God is and what, we can, what he can do. So it doesn't matter what the image is, there's no image that can do that. And then you think about this, how can the nations, the people of the nations, who are not more than a drop from a bucket, how can they come along and say, well, we're going to create this and be able to worship it because it's God. No, that's not it. So to those that are making idols, those who are seeking something other than God to worship, verse 21, he says this, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? Don't you get this? God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent. He brings, and here's where he begins to talk about the nations and the empires. He brings 
The princes to naught and reduces rulers of this world to nothing. So on one level, he's telling the poor people who are coming back after Babylon, you remember Assyria? They don't exist anymore because of me. You remember Babylon? The Medes and the Persians took care of them because of me. And so on one level, he's saying, don't worry about the nations, don't worry about the empires. Verse 24, no sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner are they, do they take root in the ground, then he blows them away. And the whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. So again, he's, he's making it very clear to the people of Israel, listen guys, you don't need to worry about those kinds of things. I rule over the rulers. It's really important for us to remember. So to those who were satisfied with idol carvings and sculptures and worshiping those instead of God, to those who are satisfied with anything but God, he says this in verse 25, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift your eyes and look at the heavens. Who created these? Who brings out the starry hosts one by one? And he goes on to talk about how he calls them by name. We're talking about trillions and trillions and trillions of galaxies, not just stars. Every time I read something about the numbers, it just keeps expanding and the numbers keep getting bigger. And they lost me a long time ago, but it's fun to see all the, you know, to the umpteenth power. What kinds of things are we willing to pursue instead of God? That was the question that went through my mind. What do we pursue? I mean, they were making little idols and we would laugh at that, but do we make idols in our own lives? How about the way I spend my time when I've done everything that I don't have any choice over? I have to work and I have to do certain things. Now I've got a block of time. What am I going to do with that block of time? And that can be a sign of what's going on in my heart. Where do I invest my effort? Where do I spend the hours that God gives me in a day? What do my financial resources and how I use things show about my my relationship with God? God never gets tired of being God. That's one of the things we need to remember. He transcends all things. Transcends all beings. But he gets to the end here, and I think he wants to encourage them a little bit more. In verse 27, Isaiah says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Now remember, he wrote this before they even went into captivity. But this is, was designed for them to see and read and understand as they're in captivity. And so now 70 years have gone by and people who were taken there died. There were people that were born there and got married there and had kids. And a couple of generations may have gone by of people who have not been in the promised land. They've been in Babylon. And it's very possible that this verse is actually really kind of aimed at them saying, listen, why are you saying God doesn't care? This was supposed to be this way. As a nation, we sinned, and God said, fine, this is going to take care of that. I want you to think about this for 70 years, and then we're done. We'll, we'll go back to the land. And verse 27 was is that whole idea of, okay, you know, don't complain about the fact that God doesn't see or understand because he, he really does. And so he says to them, 
all of you who are hurting and wondering where God is, you're wondering why God is hiding and, and not listening to your answers. Verse 28, here he comes again. Do you not know? <laughs> Have you not heard? The Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, he will not grow tired and weary. In his understanding, no one can fathom. And I see that we're running right out of time. I'm really sorry about that. Let me just give you the, uh, really quickly, Isaiah reminds us that God has the power to act, never gets tired, knows and understands all things. That's part of it. That's uh, the, the, the first one. And then um, verse 29, he gives strength to the weak. He increases the power. Uh, he gives them hope. And they renew their strength. And they soar. And that's the whole idea of to wait and trust in God. To trust and wait on Him means complete dependence and willingness to submit. I'll give you the outline so you can go home and read it and see if I'm right. And, and check it out. And then those who God will strengthen are those who wait on the Lord and He will renew their strength. In other words, they'll get new strength. They'll soar like eagles. And this isn't just flying. This is soaring. So the wind comes along and you're going... And there's hardly any effort in them. Have you ever watched an eagle soar in the wind or, or a hawk or something? It's incredible. Or you run without getting tired, walk, and keep a steady pace. So what do we take away from this? Please go back and spend some time in verses 29 through 31 there. But I don't know about you, but this last 14, 15 months has not been one of my favorites. 2020 was one of my least favorite year I think I've ever remembered. And Carol and I have been through some things that were really kind of difficult at times. Many of us are tired. I know I am. I'm tired of COVID. I'm tired of politics. I'm tired of being worried about COVID. I'm tired of, and I could go on and on and on of all the things I'm tired of. Many of us are concerned about those that we love who are hurting and struggling. What do we do when we are personally at the end of our endurance? How can we keep on going when it seems totally hopeless? Verse 28. Do you not know? (laughs) Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. So a couple things here. First of all, the eternal God never gets tired. Never. Second thing, our Creator understands and knows us inside out. So whatever we face, whatever we're struggling with, not a surprise to God. And by the way, He can handle it. He's our gentle, good shepherd. He's our strong defender. He's our almighty God. So as we continue this year, and we have no idea where it's going, I know what I'm going to go back to the next time I'm struggling or wondering or just thinking, God, what are, what's, what's happening? I'm going back to Isaiah 40. Specifically, verse 29, 30, and 31. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Strength to the weary. You're tired? Well, God never runs out of strength. He gives strength to the weary. Now, who is it that normally doesn't get tired and weary? Well, the youth, the young men. I notice it doesn't say anything about old men not getting tired, because we do. But verse 30 says, even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. And then he goes on to say, there's hope. There's hope. 
There's hope. Those who hope in the Lord. This is great. Will. Will renew their strength. Will soar on wings like eagles. Will run and not grow weary. Will walk and will not faint. That's where I'm going back. Every time I get tired, frustrated, upset, when I wonder what God's doing, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar. They will run. They will walk. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for these these words full of hope from Isaiah. And Lord God, I pray that we would learn these words, that we would hang on to them for dear life. Because we know you will not let go of us. So we thank you and we praise you. In your precious, precious name we pray. Amen.